bandwidth for JS Party is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. Welcome to JS Party, a weekly celebration of JavaScript and the web. Tune in live on Fridays at 3 p.m. U.S. Eastern at changelaw.com slash live. Join the community and Slack with us in real time. Head to changelaw.com slash community. Follow us on Twitter. We're at JS Party FM. And now on to the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome to JS Party, where it's a party every week with JavaScript. Um, all right. I still don't let's, want let's dive that right into slogan. it. <laughs> just, just, I want my voice to be heard that I think that's a dumb slogan. Move on. I kind of, I think it's dumb, but I like making Michael say it. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. That's very fair. No, that's, that's really fair. That's really fair. All right. I'm Michael Rogers. I'm Alex Sexton. And I'm Rachel White. All right, everybody. Let's let's get this party started. Let's just dive right into the first topic. So Google broke the internet. Um, I, I don't know why they keep pointing out flaws in the internet security, but they broke the internet again. Um, <laughs> no. I, I thought so, they helped uh, disclose it, but wasn't it like some German uh, W some 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 acronym? I think it was the Germans. That's all I'm saying. It was the Germans. Yeah. <laughs> Likely story. Um, no, anyway, so SHA-1 hashing algorithm has been has been cracked. Um, I guess like in 2005, there was a paper written that said theoretically it could be cracked, but nobody had done it yet. Um, and, and apparently as of like 2010, the federal government said no government encryption can use any SHA-1 algorithms, which is a pretty good indication that foreign governments have been able to crack this for a while. Yeah. The... <laughs> yeah. Um, the only person I've seen strongly support SHA-1 for the last six or seven years is Linus Torvalds in Git. Uh, it's so annoying. <laughs> and and, and not just kind of. He really was like, you guys are all super dumb for caring about this. <laughs> I know. It's really crazy. He's still downplaying it, actually. Yeah. Um, nice. So 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 back backing up a little bit, let's just kind of get into like, what is SHA-1 and what does it do? So does anybody else want to take a crack at this or do you want me to explain it? I only know it from like Git related stuff. So that's right. Right. All. Well, that, that's actually a really good way to explain it, though. Right. So so the, the way that Git uses SHA-1 is, is kind of indicative of how everybody uses it, which is that you you take a bunch of data and you say, oh, I want a unique identifier for this data. So you hash it. Right. Um, and that's what Git does to every change that comes into the into the Git tree. It gets this hash of the data and it uses that as the identifier. So if you like go to GitHub and you go to a project and then you click on commits and then you click on one of those commit links in the Earl bar, you'll see like this randomly kind of generated identifier. And that is a unique identifier for that hash. Um, the, the problem is that if you could forge these, if you could, you, you know, like that's a very small amount of data representing a large amount of data. So theoretically, if you can reverse engineer the algorithm, you could come up with a with a different set of data that would also hash to that same thing. Um, and people have been theoretically able to do this for a while, and now they really can. <laughs> um, and it so still costs like uh, $100,000. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it, it'll get cheaper, but right now, like with the current algorithm, the current breaking, it's insane how much faster they can do it, but still, like with AWS, like spot instances, it costs around $100,000 to to just like break a random thing. But, but how much do I have to pay like a Russian hackers that have a botnet? Uh, <laughs> oh, sure. I, yeah, I mean, uh, it's just like... Like one Bitcoin, which is roughly $20,000? Uh, sorry, I didn't hear that. 
Oh, I was saying I probably need to pay one Bitcoin, um, uh, which sure. is roughly twenty thousand dollars to to get Russian hackers to break it. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, the the uh, the cost is still prohibitive to the point where no one's gonna like troll you with this. As, like, someone really needs to want like there has to be a um, a reason someone's doing this uh, at this point. But that will only be true for like two months or something, right? Like people will make this better instantly um, and, and then exploit everybody uh, across the board. Right. And, and it's, and it's pretty much a given now that governments can do this kind of at will. Um, oh, yeah, and so yeah, what, sure. so what, what that means is that if, if your integrity checks are involved, you hashing with this algorithm, then now you're in now, if you're just using those checks, people can just inject malware, um, just, you know, whatever they want. Right. So I have a question. If if this has been relatively like not super secure for a while, what was the catalyst for people to be like, OK, it's finally time to stop using this thing? Was it was it something that Google did that you said? Oh, yeah. Well, yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, honestly, I think most people in the security community have felt like since two, 2005 that you should stop using this. There are other algorithms that are just as good uh, that don't have this problem. And in 2010, I think most reasonable companies said, hey, we should stop using this. Um, like browsers, Alex said, already, browsers already like don't allow like you'll get a very big red X uh, instead of a green lock um, if, if uh, you know. SHA-1 is used uh, for, for web security stuff. It's been well known to be uh, very crackable by someone with a ton of money uh, for a long time. Yeah, but but like Alex said, Linus Torvald has just remained unimpressed by evidence. Uh, and so <laughs> it is still in in heavy use in Git and GitHub and, and a bunch of I other mean, Linux that's, related that's, stuff. I mean, that's fine because I'm wholly unimpressed by him, so it's okay. <laughs> yeah. It's, you're, it's you're only going to make him stronger. <laughs> but yeah, so so to, to answer your question though, the the thing that happened, you know, yesterday was that um, some people from Google and the Germans um, came out and just said, "Hey, look, we cracked it. Like, here's exactly how we cracked it." So it went from theoretical to you know, here is you know, an open yeah. version of this. To, of this to be to be totally clear though, it's it's still like they have to try a ton of things. It's it's like they were able to reduce the subset that you had to brute force to a small enough amount to be uh, significant. But it still takes like 110 years of computing uh, time or something like that. Like you had to you had to put a lot of machines into it. Um, but that number will slowly uh, churn down to, you know, seconds or whatever, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, if you're future proofing, you know, don't use SHA-1. Um, <laughs> <laughs> or or past proofing. If you're just proofing at all, don't use right. SHA-1. Uh, yeah, there's right. SHA-256, which is uh, essentially exactly the same with uh, much higher entropy. Um, so just use that instead. Yeah, I, I've actually become a big fan of um, uh, multi-hash. Have you ever heard about this? No. Okay, nobody has. So uh, a, a Juan Benet has been been pushing this really hard for quite a while. Uh, he he's one of the people behind IPFS. So lots of kind of distributed peer to peer crypto stuff, um, and he's really wanted to to kind of future proof everything that he's been working on. So he started this little uh, open source project called Multi Formats, 
And and what these are is essentially, you know, every time that you've got to sit down and use a codec or you've got to use like a particular encryption algorithm or a hashing function like this, um, let's just create a format that, you know, allows you to define which format you're using so that libraries can just, you know, optionally support a bunch of different formats. And if in the future you want to change formats, you don't break all of your clients, essentially. It's like, uh, I mean, very similar to MKV or... MOV, all the container things for video codecs, I suppose. Right, right. Although t- containers oddly actually do implement a bunch of features. <laughs> sure. <laughs> this gets really ugly actually in, in codecs and containers. Um, but yeah, I mean, so there, like for multi-hash, for instance, there's uh, libraries in pretty much every language ever, uh, including a very well-maintained JavaScript implementation that works, um, you know, in the in the browser and in Node. Um, so that's that's what I've used in a couple projects recently. But um, Linus, the, the funny thing is that Linus is actually like still just not convinced. Um, so he, he's, he's basically said that, you know, well, the way that Git uses it is still not prone to these attacks because, you know, they have the length of the body and that makes the this harder. Um, so, you know, we'll see how that ends up. That's, I mean, it does make it a lot fun. harder for what it's worth. It does. It, it, <laughs> it does make that it does make the attack a lot harder. But like, I, I do feel like he rather than future proofing or moving to like just a better algorithm. He's yeah. just kind of dangling out this like, Oh, prove me wrong. <laughs> Computer scientists. <Right>. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which, which like didn't work out that well for, you know, his, <laughs> the last round of this. Right. Yeah. yeah. It, it seems silly to be like, well, you only half broke it. So I'm going to like, if you got through a half of my lock, I'm going to go ahead and uh, just change out the whole thing. Yeah. Rather than just like, no, I'm going to start just, you know, continuing to put these half locks on things. Right. <laughs> yeah. But this this kind of reminds me that like uh, the, the way that we think about security on the web tends to be like, oh, I put Cloudflare in front of it. So I'm secure now. Um, you know, like I added SSL or I added TLS or something. So I'm secure now. Um, right. But really security is like this really multi-layered thing where when you when you break off one layer of the onion, you need the other layers around it to still be secure, right? Yeah, I think you almost can't even break off any of the layers of the onion. Other, <laughs> yeah, uh, Security is really, really hard. It's just, it is... At, at, it needs to be there at every layer. Uh, otherwise, the other ones just have no effect, you know? Um, right. right. Like you're, it's, it's, I think an onion is a poor metaphor, I guess is what I'm saying. I, I, you <laughs> know, the, the chain or whatever is, is much better. Like if, if you have a single weak link, then it doesn't matter. You can get, you can get through. Yeah. I mean, if you look at like some of the stuff that people have been doing with auth for a while, you know, OAuth jumps through all of these hoops to basically do an extra layer of encryption. Um, and initially they kind of did that so that you could do OAuth over HTTP without TLS. But when they, but like, even when you added TLS to it, it, it's really nice to keep all that encryption there. And one of the things that OAuth2 did was it just kind of got rid of that and was like, oh, whatever, we're using TLS. Um, but like, it, you know, you can break TLS. We know that certain authorities have been compromised for TLS so people can give out bad certs. Like, um, that that's not a very, you know, <laughs> good way to secure everything. Um, well, so sure. Want, I mean, if, if you... Operate under the assumption that TLS is broken, though, then the entire internet's broken already. So it's like it, the auth channel, uh, if you had that extra encryption, would be broken. But then as soon as you got to that website and used it, you'd be screwed anyways if TLS was broken. So I, I don't think it'd be any more broken than it would already be, I guess. It's just, you're, you're screwed if, that, if that's the case. 
no matter no matter what. Uh, maybe someone doesn't get your authentication credentials, but hopefully you haven't reused those anywhere else. So. <laughs> All right. Well, I mean, do we have anything else to say about hashing algorithms? This is a, this is a pretty deep topic to to start a JavaScript show with. Yeah, sure. you know, <laughs> interesting choice. Uh, so, topical. like, some, somebody that doesn't know anything about this kind of stuff, aka me or someone else that doesn't necessarily have to deal with the security side of uh, the code that they write, uh, what would be like the best thing for them to like? What would be the best resource for somebody that wants to know like how to actually authenticate stuff in a secure way that? Uh, I don't know, wouldn't anger Linus or Linus, whoever you say his name. Uh, I don't know if I'm answering your question directly, but if you're building a website uh, and you want to make sure your website is secure, uh, Mozilla Observatory is a really good option for like, it will scan your website. It'll check your TLS certs, which is some of this is involved there. And then it'll, um, it'll check content security policy, a bunch of uh, different things. It'll kind of give you a prioritized uh, list of things uh, to do. So I would absolutely recommend like putting any website you build through Mozilla Observatory to, to kind of get that checklist of, of and score and, and things like that. Cool. That's awesome. I didn't even know about that site. So that is helpful. I think also like maybe we can call out a couple good uh, like uh, application layer authentication schemes as well. Um, I mean, this this is one of the problems with, you know, get not updating and getting rid of this is that, you know, people take their best practices from their common tools and and, you know, not using a secure hashing algorithm is just not sending a very good message. But um, I'd like to see, you know, like, Alex, you work for a bank ostensibly, <laughs> you know, what authentication scheme are you using over there? Um. For, for I guess for which uh, that this is a, seems like a very broad question. Uh, like what? How do we auth our employees? How do we auth? How do you auth like customers? Like do you, do you actually you know encrypt or hash um, different pieces of you know the Stripe thing? I hope you do. Uh, <laughs> I hope uh, that my credit card number is not just like sitting there. Yeah. So PCI. Um, determines all of the algorithms for how you must store credit card numbers and things like that. So um, I, I, I would probably, I, I have a pretty good guess on what it is, but I'm not even uh, credentialed enough to touch or look at any of that code um, as a, an early employee at Stripe. So I think um, that's another one of the security precautions that PCI mandates. But um yeah, it, it is it is mandated by a body, but but as far as just like uh, all of this auth goes, uh, I, I feel like maybe <laughs> my security uh, brain is coming out a little bit. Like the, the way that your password gets hacked is not uh, hashing algorithm collisions currently. Um, this one's bad. I don't think too many people are using SHA-1. Even if you use like HMAC with SHA-1, it's fine, right? Like, like you, there's even ways to to make uh, uh, SHA-1 fine. But like, use bcrypt to um, do passwords. Uh, actually, don't. <laughs> my number one recommendation is don't implement any uh, security stuff yourself. Use libraries that are well known and well tested. Um, the the number one rule at Stripe is don't implement your own crypto. Don't don't invent your own crypto because you have not thought it through correctly. Um, so that that's my advice. Yeah, ag agreed. I I tend to rely on pe modules written by smarter people than me. Um, <laughs> right. For this it, kind of like stuff. the the wide use of something 
signals far more security than like a smart person too, right? Like someone can be smart and, and have a, a glaring hole that they singularly forgot because there's only one set of eyes on it. Uh, but like yeah. you can be pretty sure like the Rails auth stuff works pretty well because every side of the internet would be down if, if it didn't. Unless Linus Torvalds is maintaining that library. Then. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. <laughs> but it, at least um, it's well known, right? Like the, like yeah, no one's yeah. uh, no one's being quiet about it. Yeah, yeah. I've I've actually been using Sodium encryption and signing uh, for quite a while, which is I, I don't know who came up with the standard, but um, Matthias Boos and the Node community has gotten really into it. And so there's really good libraries that work both in the browser and in Node, um, and it's a really you know good, consistent, easy way to do signing and crypto. I I the stuff that I've seen um, from previous jobs that I was at where we did a lot of Node stuff um, it was more like built into CI tests. So when it would check uh, to make sure all the tests pass, it would also check for like known vulnerabilities uh, and maybe like certain NPM packages or the way that like Node was written. So it would that be separate to other things that people would want to integrate into their like regular behavior or is that just another like good level of authentication i mean it, it's a good practice to um so snick it's snyk um has a service that you can kind of plug your open source module into i believe for free and then you know on your github prs and stuff like that um it'll check if you have any vulnerabilities and and there's obviously like a, a proprietary version as well but that you know looks through your npm tree and, and sees if there's any known vulnerabilities um and in fact even offers you ways to patch them and stuff like that so it's it's a pretty nice tool um but that's really just for for known vulnerabilities you know things that we we've already seen out in the wild it doesn't really protect against against bad practices um and also you know you run into this problem like alex was saying you know if if nobody's using the module then nobody's probably going to take the time to find these vulnerabilities early on and so you know using well well-known well-trafficked modules will really help as well. All right, I, th I, think we're, I think we're pretty good there. I think that we're actually coming into uh, time for a break now. First sponsor of the show today is our friends at Rollbar. Put errors in their place with Rollbar. Easily get set up your application. NPM install dash dash save. Rollbar, that'll get you set up with Rollbar's notifier. You also need an account, so go to rollbar.com slash changelog. Sign up, get the bootstrap plan for free for 90 days. With Rollbar's full stack error monitoring, you get the context, the insights, and the control you need to find and fix bugs faster. No more relying on users to report your errors, digging through log files to debug issues, or dealing with a million alerts in your inbox, ruining your day. Once again, rollbar.com slash changelog. Sign up, get the bootstrap plan for free for 90 days. And now back to the show. All right, um, let's let's dive into this a little bit. So, a relatively routine new version of Node came out, um, seven point six. Like we we do these releases all the time, um, but this one is a big deal, and people are making a big deal out of it because um, V eight got updated in the background. They they've been doing a lot of work so that we can actually take um, new versions of V eight in point releases um, and not break the ABI for everybody. So that's been great. Um, but in this release, uh, async slash await uh, came out from under a flag. Um, so now in a in a current release of Node, you can you can do async await. Um, so I'm curious what what y'all think of this and and what your uh, what your views are, are on it. Because I <laughs> before I get into my view, um, 
I suppose I I don't have a ton of opinions. Um, I understand the two sides of this, and I feel like uh, I, I mean, I think the primary, con- uh, at least the thing people are calling their primary concern is performance of this versus callbacks or promises or, or whatever. Um, but I think that's silly because a it'll get faster. Uh, the next version and and be like it's such a small performance hit that that who cares uh it's it's primarily uh sugar so i guess there are the people who dislike sugar and there are people who like sugar and just use whatever you want i, I don't know i i dislike that this is a an issue <laughs> you're just trying to make yourself above the controversy at this yeah point. exactly <laughs> yeah okay why don't you explain the controversy for us, Michael? <laughs> well, no, no, I, I, I don't think, look, I, there's a long, long argument, um, kind of against promises. There's just, there's just a lot of people that don't like promises. Um, and, and in particular, uh, like I actually don't care about promises. I I'm, I'm, I'm fully in the do whatever you want. I don't care camp. Um, I'm telling does, your wife, <laughs> but it, it does get annoying that people act like, um, the, the, this is like revolutionary. Um, you know, like, like a lot of the articles that were written about this feature coming into node are like node finally tackles asynchronous programming, like node 0.02 tackled asynchronous programming. <laughs> like the asynchronous programming has been part of node since day one. It's been like the hardest thing for people to get over. Um, and, and callbacks for the most part of actually like the standard callback interfaces has, has kind of wrangled that into something usable and really fast. Um, and pro- and I think promises landed, you know, a while ago in, in V8, um, native promises. We, we, people have been using promises, though, um, since, you know, early promise standards. You know, Bluebird yeah. is, is based on the promise standard, right? Which is which is the really fast one that people tend to like. I, I feel um, like people use promises far before it was even uh, standard in V8 or whatever. Right, right. Well, and, and before it was a standard, there were all these competing standards for promises. So, so if you if you go back far enough, you know, you just could not get two people to agree on the same promise. Um, well, and Dominic Dana, you, you Dominic couldn't Danicola, get jQuery to agree with the the rest of it. Like Chris Zip and <laughs> and uh, promises A A plus. Like that was that was pretty early on. I feel like. So maybe so you're, you're so so what what Alex is hinting to is this this fight in Common JS over which standard would be the the promise standard and he said a slash a plus because there was also promises slash b and c and i believe d and i don't know how many letters we got up to it didn't no get into those though it didn't, it didn't get into, <laughs> right right but um but anyway i, I think that dominic nicola did a, a ton of work just to get promise people to agree on the same spec or at least get um, everybody to stop listening to the people that were detracting um and, and got like a real standard in the language which which a lot of people that don't like promises don't like, I I personally prefer not to wrap this kind of state in an object myself. Um, But one thing that you can say about it is that the browser, if you look at all browser standards, there's just no standard way to do IO handlers. There's, you know, if you look at every DOM API that has to do this, they do something slightly different and all of them are awful. And even if you don't like promises, most of what people do in the DOM to do the same thing is just worse than promises. Um, so yeah, so it, it's nice to have a standard and that going forward, you know, if you look at like the fetch API and some of these new browser APIs, you have something unified, which right. is, is just so good. Like, I, I mean, to be clear, uh, promises made it into the DOM specification, not ECMA, right? 
Well, they're in, it's sort of in both, right? So, so async await is a feature in the JS language, and right. it effectively yields a promise, right? Um, right? And it relies on that standard. So you're getting into like this annoying territory sure. where we have two but, standards bodies working on the web platform. But yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but like uh, the promise object doesn't have to exist in in Node. Uh, I guess the native promise thing. It just kind of does because V8 does. Right, but there there's some really low level hooks. So now now we're gonna get into some, some <laughs> Node.js. Now we're gonna get into some Node.js details. But there, there's there's a lot of tracing and debugging that you can do in Node.js, especially in production systems, to really get at like the underlying state that's going on. Um, and th there's there's all kinds of different methods to get at this. Node is is one of the more inspectable platforms out there. Um, so there's different types of tracing that people do. Um, and there's also this thing called uh, async wrap, which is like an an async hook into the low-level event system. And in order to do that, we, we in Node, there's this thing called make callback in C++ land that wraps the callback that happens. So it's just this little function. Um, but promises don't have that kind of hook yet. Native promises don't have the hook yet in V8. So there's work that needs to be done to get an equivalent thing happening at the native level, which at that point actually will make it much more valuable to use native promises rather than something like Bluebird. But anyway, um, so what, what what it all comes down to is that uh, I think that people don't actually like composing all of these promises into a bunch of things. They actually get kind of annoying and messy. And and the end goal has been this async await feature, which essentially allows you to kind of yield out a promise. Um, so it's it's a it's a syntactic sugar on top of uh, what people are doing now. But it it is one of those more important pieces of syntactic sugar that that makes us far more usable than it used to be, right? Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't tackle a lot of the core problems people have with promises, namely uh, error eating. Um, <laughs> yeah. Right. But yeah. Um, but I think if you're already using promises, async await can be a nice uh, update to to your code style. I, I think for the most part, uh, it's it's fine. You don't have to use it. No one's forcing anyone to use it. You can almost always write a little wrapper around some dependent library that uses it to switch it back to whatever you like to use uh fibers or, or whatever um uh nobody but, uses fibers Stop no i know that. i i intentionally said something that uh, no one uses uh, <laughs> but uh the, the I, I think is a silly argument just because it's it's like it's sugar it, most of the time performance on it is it's not going to matter materially at all and you can choose to not use it um so deal with it yeah, that's 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 a really good recap. <laughs> I wanted more controversy. Come on, Rachel, come in and, and tell me how much you love promises, real quick, so I, we can get into it. <laughs> I'm just kidding. See, that that's the thing. Like now that I don't write a ton of production code, I can do whatever I want. So nothing makes me angry because if it does, I'll just do it a different way. So I'm pretty much <laughs> indifferent about uh, you know arguments in regards to like code preferences as long as it works i'm happy with it we're not going to have very good arguments on this podcast if everybody's above arguing <laughs> i mean i'll argue but <laughs> not about this yeah uh the question on our chat in slack you can join the changelog slack and the js party uh channel uh Seth Etter asked, is there any argument against async and await other than performance and syntax sugar is bad? Um, eating, well, against eating async and await, maybe not because it's just sugar. Uh, but there are plenty of more arguments against 
promises than just uh, performance, namely error handling, uh, I think is, is the number one complaint uh, that whenever you're inside of um, promises, oftentimes you're many levels deep inside thens and, and, and stuff and uh, errors can get swallowed uh, in a, in a way that is very, very hard to track them down um, and very hard to even get stack traces back out of them when you do catch them. So you have to be very explicit about every error step along the path. And if you're not, then things just get swallowed and you don't realize that bad things are happening in your code. So I think that's, it may not be the number one like design flaw with them, but it's certainly the number one like thing people run into whenever they set up a giant promise-based system. Yeah. And I think also like the way that it handles errors kind of conflicts with the way that um, not just Node handles errors, because that's that wouldn't be accurate. Node doesn't have like a way to handle errors, but a lot of the debugging facilities and tracing facilities in Node rely on errors and exceptions kind of bubbling up to the top. Um, And so because it's swallowing them, you lose a lot of the state and you, you can't figure out where you're going. So a lot of like production Node systems have have issues with that particular mode and that's that's being worked on right like this is all really really early days so i think that all of this is going to get better over time um but people that are you know already have a big production system kind of don't like this i I think there's also a a style argument or a way that people like to to (laughs) to write code argument um and it's the argument this argument is as old as time which is just a kind of oo versus functional programming argument um, and, and essentially promises, you know, wrap up a bunch of state in this object abstraction that you can then stack and compose. And some people think that that is a bad style of writing code compared to more functional programming style. And so there's there's that argument out there as well. Um, and I think that like people have different brains and different people's yeah. brains like these different ways of writing code. <laughs> sure. So so. Uh... Uh, Seth also asked, uh, if, is there a suggestion for avoiding, uh, like the error stuff and some of these other gotchas? And, and I don't think there, there's a great one. Like there are good, like baseline rules for how to not write promises in a way that, that accidentally swallow errors. But in practice, like with some of the most brilliant people, like it still happens almost every time once or twice somewhere. Um, so, uh, there are other mechanisms for asynchronous coding. So, so the baseline one would be callbacks, but then you you get to what people hate about callbacks, which is callback hell or whatever. I'm sure Michael has uh, some things to say about callback hell, but uh, I don't think he can deny that callback hell exists uh, for some people. Um, but then um, there are other async mechanisms, like uh, async functions are coming in the future, which is uh, a pretty fundamentally uh, different model. Um, and then generators, um, if, uh, if, if you know that model or another way to kind of yield, um, control, uh, in certain sections and then, and then pop back back to those, um, not necessarily used in the same exact ways, but generators and async functions are kind of cool because they make, uh, they don't swallow errors in the same way and they make programming asynchronously look somewhat synchronous which is which is pretty cool um they are also because of that can be very confusing because you don't realize uh, it's very hard to stretch your brain to say like oh this one character here this one keyword caused all this stuff to happen behind the scenes uh and so they can be somewhat difficult to reason about sometimes 
Uh, maybe Michael has more opinions on generators than async functions, though. Yeah, or, or I mean, I, th- I think be- I think before we go too deep into this, though, I just want to point out that in the browser, there's actually some new features around promises and for error tracking and handling specific to promises um, that that I, th- I believe actually rely on the native promises. Um, so They're for debugging the promises, though, it wouldn't be like you, your code would still swallow it, but you might be able to see it in your tooling. Does that make right. sense? Right, right, exactly, exactly. Um, but, but honestly, I mean, so, so the solution to callback hell is is to write code that doesn't have callback hell. The same way that the way to not swallow errors and promises is right. to write code in a way that doesn't swallow the errors. Yeah, right? so it, like it's the, yeah, yeah, not necessarily a good solution, but it, it's viable. <laughs> yeah, um, I'll also say just about coroutines. There's a library called Co um, that is the main thing that people use on the Node side to to really do a lot of the asynchronous programming using generators, um, and it. It's it's not in super wide use generally, but it has this huge following in China, um, really big. Um, it's 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 actually really interesting. So there's um, so th- there's this dude uh, Dead Horse on on GitHub, um, but he took over maintaining some of uh, TJ Holloway Chuck's modules when TJ like you know left quit As for go quit for go you know as you do um, and <laughs> but. Uh, yeah, he took over a lot of the Co stuff, and and Dead Horse is actually like a, a really well known programmer in China. He he helps with some of the the C node and CNPM uh, local stuff. Um, he's he's actually a, a great dude. I met him when I went out to China. Um, but because he's such a presence there, um, I think that he has sort of like you know by himself kind of propped up um, the the coroutine stuff. And a lot of the people in a lot of programmers in China are actually using that. Like there's there's not as big of a promise following there, and it's it's much more around the Co stuff. It's a really interesting. It's one of the few like divergences in in preferences that I know that are actually like uh, ge- geographic. Geographically based. Yeah. Um, I actually only use the async module. Mm. Is it, that's that's kind of not maintained anymore either. <laughs> oh, I, uh, that was not uh, not true. But back in the day, that was somewhat revolutionary. Like, I yeah. think some of people's love for promises came out of kind of the bridge between promises and callbacks that async was it was like this weird middle ground where you didn't have to you know count the number of different things that had finished or uh introduce like multiple layers of callbacks in a row you could kind of uh use the async module to to flatten some of those things um but it it definitely wasn't by any means like a standard or uh even internally consistent in, in how it worked but i think it was it was nice from a from a, a community growth standpoint, it was a stepping stone. So, yeah, yeah. I, I think like in the server space and in the front end space, if you get popular enough, somebody will make a promise version of your thing and there will be like a following around that. Like there's As definitely promise. that for request. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but I'm I'm actually curious, Rachel, if you see this in the hardware space at all. If like there are, if there are as much of a promise following um, in, in node bots and whatnot. Um... I honestly couldn't tell you because I live in such a <laughs> siloed um, <laughs> thing. And I mean, most of the, well, a lot of the NodeBot stuff is very single usage thing. So you'll have like one sensor um, being controlled by some other input. So there's not a lot of need for a ton of promises or stuff that you would need uh 
to have something special. It's, you don't, you just don't run into the same kind of problems that you run into when you're writing things for the web, which is probably why I like hardware so much. What about um, like sequential actions? Like you want some servo oh, to do this, okay. then this, then this, then this. Yeah. So you definitely, well, you, the thing that you run into the most then is when you're like trying to run stuff on serial port. So when you're getting data from multiple places at once and sometimes, you know, um, the stuff that you're waiting to happen from your sensor over Wi-Fi isn't going to happen um, as quickly or in sync as the stuff coming over your serial port um, cord. So it it is sort of an issue, but uh, not that much. I at least haven't run into it that often. Plus, whenever I have to deal with a bunch of really intense, uh, it usually happens whenever you have to rewrite uh, more custom C to handle new kinds of chips and then have the C work with your own uh, like Johnny Five stuff on an Arduino or a Tessel. Yeah, that, that's it's all like really low level callback stuff, right? So you don't get a lot yeah. of like high level yeah. composition at that layer. Yeah, I, I I'm trying to think of like anything that I've done recently that has been what I would refer to as callback hell, and it probably would be like some node application that I utilized Graphics Magic with. So I'm actually interested in going in and trying out the new node version with that kind of stuff. Um, it it might I think it might be really helpful. For, helpful for people that do a lot of uh procedural art-based stuff on the web actually yeah i mean also so so there's these performance arguments right now and uh, honestly i'll even though i'm not a huge promise advocate i think most of the performance arguments are really dumb um but in, in hardware it actually might make sense um so w the reason why i think that the performance arguments are stupid is that you're talking about like 0 0.02 milliseconds i think it is the like the the largest right. difference between bluebird and it promises and native promises and if you're talking to the network or the file system that's really not a thing like like your, your web socket delay to localhost is, is roughly like a three millisecond round trip time <laughs> so yeah. like it's just it's just not ever going to be noticeable but with serial port like you're talking to to, to the hardware there i mean it, it is asynchronous but it is really really fast and so you could actually see some of the performance stuff like stack up there you might actually like start to care i don't care about much but <laughs> we'll see <laughs> <laughs> how fast can i AI this cat photo to blink this okay, LED. Okay, listen, don't, don't, <laughs> don't, don't pigeonhole me. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I like, I like other animals. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, I do more than just cat images. <laughs> I wish I yeah, did. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. You know, I enjoy pigeons and raccoons and other various animals that love garbage. <laughs> we should have isaac on so you guys could discuss oh uh, i've already discussed raccoons. raccoons with isaac and no i know i just want that to be like a live <laughs> uh voice thing i don't know if i ever want to have that conversation again yeah i made the For mistake anyone of... that's wondering uh isaac from npm how if you ever see them talk to them about how much they love raccoons they don't <laughs> okay <laughs> Oh, and on that note, uh, we're about ready for another break. And when we come back, we'll talk a little bit about uh, the featured project of the week. Our friends at Top Tower, longtime supporters of Changelog. If you've ever had to quickly scale your team, 
you know how hard it is. You have to go through all this hassle of writing job descriptions, adding them to your website, or maybe you have to hire somebody just to go out there and find the candidates for you. That's a lot of work, a ton of work that you don't have to do if you call my friends at TopTal. They do all the work for you to find the right candidates for your positions. Plus, because they have a very rigorous screening process to identify the best, you know you're only getting qualified candidates for your open positions. Head to TopTal.com to learn more. That's T-O-P-T-A-L.com. Tell them Adam from the Changelog sent you. If you'd like a more personal introduction, email me, adam at changelaw.com. And now back to the show. And we are back. All right. <laughs> We're going to get into uh, feature project of the week, ARJS. Uh, Rachel's particularly stoked about this one, so I'm, I'm going to let you take this over. Is that, it's yeah. about assault rifles? No. <laughs> no. That's, this that's is version a... 15. ARJS V15. Okay. So ARJS is this really awesome um, library that you can use now that is augmented reality for the web using AR toolkit. Uh, it's built of a, a couple other different technologies. Uh, it's using 3JS. It's using A-Frame from uh, who made A-Frame? This is horrible. It's Mozilla's A-Frame, um, which is if you haven't messed around with A-Frame, what it does is it allows you to do WebGL VR in the browser. So you can either view things in the browser um, with a 3D appearance, or if you have, you know, like a Google Cardboard or any other kind of virtual reality headset that um, phones go into, it allows you to actually see the 3D object that you have developed uh, in virtual reality with your phone. And what ARJS does is it blends all of these things together and allows you to use digital markers. Uh, they're they're using Hero markers, which are these. Um, Squares that have a, burritos. Yeah. Uh. No. no. <laughs> <laughs> they're 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 like QR codes. Basically, any kind of digital marker is just using image processing with like nearest neighbor uh, type of math mathy things. Uh, I'm great at explaining things technically. <laughs> so basically what ARJS does is unfortunately, if you have an iOS uh, phone, it doesn't work. So I can't even test it, which bums me out. But if you have an Android phone, um, you can set it up so that you have your 3D environment that you've crafted with A-Frame. Um, and A-Frame is built on top of 3JS because it allows for the, the 3D objects in the browser. Um, and then it uses the AR Toolkit, which uh, it was originally a library in C, and they've made it work with JavaScript. And it does that nearest neighbor processing of the hero marker, and it assigns your 3D objects so that when you use your phone um, in a WebGL-supported browser, and you point it at the marker either uh, on like a computer screen or on a piece of paper that's printed out, whatever 3D object you've assigned to that marker in your code will appear like on the phone or the device that you're viewing it through as a like hologram type thing. It's really cool. Um, A-Frame is really accessible for people that are just starting out in JavaScript. Their documentation is amazing. And pretty much what this uh, AR.js library does is it allows you to take... They, they basically took all of the, the difficult part, uh, the, diffi 
the difficult steps out of the equation. So everything is built together for you. The documentation on it is pretty good. Um, it says that it runs at 60 frames per second on a Nexus, Nexus 6, which is pretty impressive. Uh, and there's a lot of examples of 3JS things that you can do with it. So I'm excited to see what people make with it because I'm very, very interested in any kind of augmented reality, virtual reality, mixed reality situation that we can do with JavaScript. It's super exciting. I'm only going to, this is only a slight side check, but so it runs at 60 frames a second. And if you look at the pictures of it, it's, uh, it's like this blob that sits on a piece of paper and you can look around and the blob stays on the piece of paper, uh, which is uh, pretty nifty. And, and like you can move it and animate it and things like that. So you could spin it on the piece of paper while, while you look around and like that runs at 60 frames a second. And that's pretty verifiable on, on, on a phone, but like, I can't get like a div to animate from 200 pixels high to 500 pixels high at 60 frames a second. Half the time. I can't get my web page to scroll at 60 frames a second by default I mean, half the time. So it's because, so, it's because you're not using so WebGL, man. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'm just always so amazed at like the difference that like everybody is almost hitting 60 frames per second, but like the place where we're starting out is always so different. Um, it just, it always blows my mind when these things work quickly. That's all I wanted to say. I mean, obviously that just means that the future of web is that it's all going to be holograms. I'll buy it. Yeah. I'm into <laughs> it. Um, I actually would be really interested in finding out. I know that there's a device called the leap motion. Um, it's a USB device that uh, lets you essentially use your hand. It, it, I think it's like two cameras. And so it's essentially scanning the space above the leap motion. And when you put your hand in front of it, you get a 3D model. It's used a lot with like Unity and gaming type stuff like that. But I know that there is a way to use it with WebGL. So now I'm curious if I'm able to use a leap motion with this augmented reality application to not only be able to view holographic things through a device, but if I could couple it with another thing and try and move things around, I'm just sure. like thinking of all the like really weird and awesome stuff that people can build with this. Yeah. This and is the stuff that I get excited. To, thanks in advance to leap motion for sponsoring, uh, the JS party podcast. And also <laughs> thanks to, uh, in advance to uh, the next company I'll get free advertising to, uh, uh, the Mayo armband I, I backed on Kickstarter or something like that a long time ago. It's not quite uh, positional, so um, it might not know exactly where your hand is, but I feel like you could do that with a marker. But then it it essentially can give you data about your exact hand position. So it's an armband that goes kind of like next to your elbow, uh, like pretty far back, and it just reads the tensions in like your different tendons to know that your hand is... Uh, like doing like a motion, like a pull or a push or a squeeze or anything of those different things. Uh, yeah, so, I, I remember seeing that. So I, I've actually given a few talks where you hook up the like the next slide and previous slide as just like swipes in the air uh, or like behind your back. And then you can uh, like start animations or different things like that with squeezes. And there's a whole uh, set of default things uh, for, for Keynote and stuff. It's, it's pretty nifty, though. Uh, I find that sometimes you you false positive switch a slide whenever you're gesturing wildly. But um, the yeah, that makes it like you could just put like a marker on your hand to know position. You know, you get a RFID tattoo 
um, or not an RFID, a, a QR code. You have the RFID uh, baked into your hand or something, right, Rachel? Yeah, I have an RFID chip in my hand. Yeah, that's uh, in solidarity with your pets. Yeah, that's how much I love cats. I'm, <laughs> exactly. I'm really dedicated. Yeah, but I think you could do some really cool stuff, not just the position of your hand, but like the motion of your your fingers and stuff like that too, like picking it up versus pushing it versus all that stuff. Maybe a leap motion plus a, a Maya. You just mix them all together, get a drone in there somehow. Yeah, every single kind of like <laughs> crowdfunded device. Exactly. Put them all together and see what you can yeah. get. Yeah, this is a really cool project. I, this reminds me of... Um, like when when they first uh, used mscripten to compile down like you know Doom and like these 3D games when they were first doing like 3D standards in the browser and those like essentially demos that nobody really ever used were what ended up pushing the web's implementation of WebGL forward and all yeah, that. Yeah, I mean so, Brendan toured the conference circuit for like three years on those demos, and he's so bad at playing it too. It was <laughs> yeah. so funny. He, he eventually, like after dying so quickly, so fast, so many times in front of uh, 500 people, uh, hacked the parameters of the game to where he can't. He he plays in God mode now when he does. Are the you demo. talking about the Century Chicken talk? Uh, yeah. I mean that the same version of that talk has different okay. games. But yeah, yeah. Um, so actually one thing I'd really love to see, uh, one mashup I'd love to see with this just spitballing here is some sort of like, if you use like a, a piece of paper, uh, and then you're able to kind of draw, uh, shapes and then, and then, you know, press some button on your keyboard and then it, it like ARFies it to where you can like pick up the shape. Uh, does that make sense? Like yeah. essentially like the, the, the style and like the super futuristic movies, I feel like we're almost there to where you can draw something and then manipulate it. Um, it well, in, in 3d space. Well, there is something that exists like that. Uh, not in the JavaScript world, but there, there is an application called Vuforia that allows you to create those kind of like augmented experiences where you can interact with things. Uh, so maybe somebody should, somebody should do that. Yeah, I look forward to one of our uh, listeners from this week uh, presenting that on the show next week. It just takes one week, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, like, so have y'all done any WebGL programming at all or, or played around with any of the, the kind of raw stuff? Yeah, I have. Um, I have a bit. I, I'm learning A-Frame. Uh, I'm messing around with a bunch of... Um, other various 3JS stuff, and um, I've done some WebGL uh, video game things, but um, this is something that I am super interested in. I think people are, plus it's like happening so fast, like people are making cool stuff with this. And I find that the people that are actively developing interactive things for um, like WebGL based art are not uh, like software engineers for their day jobs. They're just like, uh, like techn multi-faceted technologists and artists that were like, oh, this is cool. I want to make cool stuff for this. And that's really awesome. Yeah. I haven't done a ton of WebGL stuff, um, a little bit for some of the Stripe um, splash page stuff, but uh, I have met Mr. Doob, which I feel like is pretty much the same thing. <laughs> okay, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um I, I've I tried to use 3JS and I really couldn't get my head into it. It's just it's one of those libraries that's just so massive. Um, 
that yeah i just i really could like i could take a demo and kind of hack it up but i couldn't really get my so head wait, around it let me let me get this straight you'll build an oven to bake your own <laughs> bread but you didn't want to do a deep dive into 3js well no it, it's it's because like I, to get at the low-level constructs that I actually want to figure out in order to understand how everything is built, it was just too much code in the way. So what what I eventually ended up finding, though, is um, Mikola Lysenko um, and uh, Substack live on the big island in Hawaii now uh, next to a volcano, and they, they hack on this wait, thing called Regal. <laughs> wait, wait. You kind of skipped over that kind of fact. <laughs> yeah. Wait, yeah. Substack lives on an island in Hawaii now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Substack I, and Macola and Marina all moved uh, to the Big Island in Hawaii because it's it's cheap and because coconuts have twelve hundred calories in them. Okay. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's amazing. You have to eat but, the um, skin in order to get all twelve hundred, though. <laughs> I don't know. But um, no, but they're they're building this thing called Regal uh, R E G L, um, and essentially it's it's you know, um, various kind of Substack small modules philosophy. Um, and Macola is just like this amazing math dude. He doing all these kinds of crazy algorithms, but, um, it's, it essentially like gives you WebGL, but then like adds a bunch of features and kind of modules and you can plug in different algorithms and stuff really easily into it. And, um, but the most amazing thing about it is like when you get an error in, in your WebGL code, you actually get line numbers out of the out of the debugger that gives you like your line number in your crazy abstract thing from Regal. Um, so it's, it's really well put together and they've done like a really amazing job with the tooling and the debugging side of it. So, um, I was actually able to build like much cooler kind of quicker things with Regal than I could with three JS. Um, even though there's, there's far less like, you know, big demos and stuff written with it yet. I, I did find it easier to just kind of pick up and learn anyway. Um, I think we're, we're, we're nearly good. Um, we're going to do picks now. It's time for picks. I hope you all picked something that you like that you can link to, um, or you can just pull one of the many things that you've already mentioned uh, in the podcast so far. Um, I I think um, I'll probably, yeah, I'll go back and I'll just pick Regal because um, it's an awesome library. I think they did a great job and, and I love those guys and uh, I hope they don't die in a volcano eruption. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and I'll plug bits.coop, B-I-T-S dot co-op. Um, it's actually Macola and uh, and Substack do consulting for any kind of 3D programming stuff that you need or, or really just any program that you need. They're, they're pretty amazing um, and they're available through bits.coop. They're, they're trying um, to do like a kind of cooperative, uh, you know, anarcho-socialist style thing for a consulting business. So check that out. Uh, my pick will be uh, Observatory from Mozilla, which is the security checker that I mentioned before. Uh, so if you have a website and you're interested in finding the security properties of that website and what you might want to do to increase them, um, such as get rid of your SHA-1 certs, um, then check out observatory.mozilla.org. Uh, my pick is actually a talk, and it's Marco Kosaka's talk on how computers read pixels. It's really, really interesting and has great diagrams if you're ever wondering how image processing works, which is a foundation for a ton of augmented and mixed reality stuff with WebGL. So it kind of helps you understand um, on a more fundamental level what is happening when you're looking at these kind of AR markers. Oh, man, Maria, talks are always so good. <laughs> 
she really like like dives into these concepts that everybody kind of takes for granted and really like learns them and and explains them in a really really amazing way i've told her that i really appreciate how she doesn't just explain how something's working so that it's accessible to everyone but she also tells like the journey of what led her to want to even do that in the first place and the like struggles that she had while making it and then the successes that's those are my favorite kinds of talks i'm gonna try for the picks maybe every other week to between like maybe a library that's cool or a project that's cool and then other talks that i think are really great and of course, you can find links to all this stuff in the show notes. Uh, that's it for this week. We'll, of course, be back next week. Um, rate us on iTunes, because that's the thing that people say at the end of podcasts. So you should probably do that. Subscribe. Uh, be nice. <laughs> subscribe. Yeah, be nice. Uh, and uh, yeah, check us out at uh, jsparty.fm. That's it for this episode of JS Party. Tune in live on Fridays at 3 p.m. U.S. Eastern at changelaw.com slash live. Follow us on Twitter. We're at JS Party FM. Join the community and Slack with us in real time during the show. Head to changelaw.com slash community. Special thanks to our sponsors, Rollbar and TopTile. Also thanks to our bandwidth partner, Fastly.com and Breakmaster Cylinder for the awesome beats. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening.